The two protagonists of this paper are Thomas Aquinas and uh, Gottlieb Songen. And if you don't know about Gottlieb Songen, he was the professor of theology who taught Joseph Ratzinger and was a Bonaventurian scholar who has some articles recently translated into English in Pro-Ecclesia by Ken Oates. I cannot recommend them highly enough. They were the, the two articles he wrote in response to Karl Barth on the question of the Analogia Entis. And so I'm going to build off his comments, but I just want to go ahead and just say at the beginning, these two articles by Songen in response to Barth in Pro-Ecclesia in recent years, translated into English, are magnificent theological essays. Seeking universality in truth, goodness, and beauty, Aquinas on the science of theology in the university. It bears keeping in mind that the modern university began initially as a project of theologians thinking about the unity of knowledge. 13th century faculties in European universities at Padua, Paris, and Oxford were formed initially from cathedral schools and divided into two main bodies, the Faculty of the Arts or Humanities, which included philosophy at its summit, and the Faculty of Theology. From the beginning, the intellectual unity of the university was, as a place of learning was far from a foregone conclusion, as if all these medieval human beings agreed on what it meant. It was more like a central problem or question that the major scholars sought to address and to theorize, often in quite different ways. Famously, they did so especially in light of the discovery of the Aristotelian corpus, since Aristotle discusses in the posterior analytics the diverse divisions of forms of knowledge, broadly, practical knowledge as distinct from speculative, and he gives rigorous definitions of science as such based on the diversity of objects under consideration so as to denote diverse speculative forms of knowledge. The great scholastic doctors of the first two centuries of university life, then, in the 13th and 14th centuries, typically sought to answer key questions that self-consciously touched directly the definition of this new enterprise, the modern university, and its meaning. And it's not even a misnomer, because they call themselves modern men. Aquinas talks about being a modern. It's an interesting question of when that term should rightly be used, but there you have it. The first question or problem was, how are the diverse forms of natural learning, although truly distinct, also coordinated and unified among themselves, and in turn open to the mystery of divine revelation? That is also far from a foregone conclusion, since you have the Latin avarists who at least are perceived as claiming that philosophy should hermetically seal itself off intellectually and rashly from the possibility of revelation. In short, what unifies our understanding of reality, and how is that unity close to divine revelation or open to it? The second major problem they faced was, is theology, that's to say the study of divine revelation, really itself a science in the Aristotelian sense? And if so, does it relate to our natural forms of learning? How does it relate to them? These questions are, as I hope to show, not so incidental to our current situation in the modern university, and may even be quite important to reconsider. We might begin by examining briefly how St. Thomas Aquinas addresses these questions himself. He and Albert the Great, his teacher, made it a central priority of their scholarly careers to engage in the study of the Aristotelian corpus, attempting to show its compatibility with truths of Catholic theology, but they did so by disputing with and dialoguing in a concerted fashion with the Muslim commentators on Aristotle, of course, they were heavily immersed in the pre-existent Augustinian theological tradition, 
And they also took major concepts of learning from Neoplatonic literature, both Christian and non-Christian. And in the midst of this, they were trying to think more fundamentally about the relationships between faith and reason and the relationship of the unity between theology and philosophy within the diverse and the, and the unity of the diverse disciplines of natural knowledge. So let's consider briefly three points of Thomistic teaching on these matters. First, well, I'll start here. In, the early, in an early work dating from 1260, which if you remember nothing else from this lecture, please remember you should go out and read if you have not read before, Aquinas' commentary on Boethius' De Trinitate. St. Thomas sought to treat these questions mentioned in great detail. It's his most important sustained reflection on the unity of natural and theological knowledge, the commentary on Boethius' De Trinitate. The text remains normative in many ways for a perennial Catholic vision of the relationship of faith and reason. At least it has echoes that are rather profound in Vatican I and in John Paul II's encyclical Faith and Reason, Fides et Ratio. When Aquinas treats there the division of the sciences or bodies of knowledge and their unity, he makes several key distinctions. The first is between the speculative sciences, like metaphysics or mathematics, that treat knowledge of the, stru the structure of reality considered for its own sake, in keeping with Notre Dame's motto, and those practical sciences like ethics, arts, or politics that are oriented toward action and human flourishing and, you might say, world improvement in keeping with the Yale University motto. Within speculative knowledge, then, he distinguishes three pure sciences. He considers them pure because, they're ob because of their objects that are distinct and utterly distinguishable. First, what he calls the philosophical knowledge, study of nature, taking that object of thought from Aristotle's book, The Physics, which investigates changing material realities. Moba ends mobile, changing being. This includes topics like what are natural forms, are there natural forms, what are the material elements of natural bodies? How can we explain change, and especially in light of causality, efficient formal and final causality? What is the reality of time? What is place? How can we understand total cosmic structure, or can we, of the physical world? But also, extending into the topics of the day anima, the nature of living things as distinct from non-living things. Are there real distinctions between living and non-living forms? And what is the soul as a life principle? Are there distinctively immaterial elements in human beings? We might call this, broadly speaking, the Aristotelian philosophy of the changing perishable world. That's one fundamental object of science. Second, the study of mathematics, which is an abstract science of quantity derived from the consideration of natural bodies insofar as they have quantitative determinable dimensions. Third, and lastly, metaphysics, the study of being and of universal properties related to being, the transcendentals like unity, truth, and goodness. And Aquinas will argue elsewhere, I would say, beauty. Now we might ask immediately, how realistic is this schema? For example, where are the observational natural sciences, such as today we would see exemplified in the modern natural scientific study of biology, chemistry, or physics? which our world takes for granted as gold standard sciences. Actually, Aquinas is well aware of observational sciences, which existed in less developed form in his own day, but he think, and he thinks they're real, but he thinks they're a blend of the first two forms of knowledge mentioned above. In effect, the observational scientist uses measurements of reality that depend upon mathematical knowledge of quantity, the scientific study of quantity, to apply this measurement through instrumentation to the study of particular 
uh, physical forms, especially considering their material and efficient causes of physical processes, their material component parts. So in this way, the observational science, scientist presupposes a kind of philosophy of nature and a kind of mathematical realism, and he does so by making a taxonomy of when he makes a taxonomy of natures and presupposes the real existence of their material natures, their change, their physical causality, their, and he begins, and he doesn't have to formally investigate philosophically what these things consist in per se. In other words, the observational natural scientist doesn't have to prove that there are natural forms, that there's a difference between an amoeba and a chimpanzee. He can just presuppose that. He doesn't have to prove also that mathematics uh, has a sort of functional interior logic. He just knows about it, and you can use it. What he does then is he studies the composition of the amoeba, or the chimpanzee, or the hydrogen uh, uh, um, um, you know, bond, looking using measurements and mathematical, um, mathematically based tools to look at material component parts. This means you can be a scientist without being overtly a philosopher of nature, so long as you presuppose a certain amount of realism regarding our contact with nature through the senses, philosophically understood through direct experience. In this sense, the observational sciences learn more about the material structure of reality, but do not as such treat or resolve more basic philosophical questions about natural kinds and matter and causality that remain irreducible. Now, if Aquinas is right, this would suggest that the study of the genetic evolution of species, for example, in modern biology, should not be confused with the more basic, irreducibly philosophical questions about why the world exists, what it consists in, whether there are natural kinds, what chance is, what causality is, what order is, what matter is, or whether there's immateriality. Those who appeal to evolution as a factual basis for evolutionary theory to introduce anti-theistic metaphysics are appealing to the wrong science insofar as they appeal to uh, this mixed mixture of observational science and in fact are making claims that are distinctively philosophical in kind, not scientific. They may be defensible, but if they're defensible, they're defensible primarily for philosophical reasons. Okay, that's, that's enough said about sort of natural science and math. Metaphysics, meanwhile, for Aquinas, is the most universal of sciences because it applies to everything that exists. Everything has being. If it's real, it exists, it has being. And if it does, then it has a certain unity to it. It has a certain form of ontological perfection in its genus. That's to say, it has a certain kind of realization of goodness. And it has truth, truthfulness to it because it's real and intelligible. It can be known. So, for example, a tree exists, a human being exists, the amoeba exists, the chimpanzee exists, and a star exists. And insofar as they do, there's a certain kind of unity to each one, a certain kind of intelligibility of truth content or essential understanding we can gain from them. And there's a certain kind of perfection. We could look at a more perfect chimpanzee as opposed to a less perfect one. And in some attenuated analogical sense, talk about the goodness of natural forms. Like, does that chimpanzee have good eyesight? That's not a crazy question. You could talk about a blind chimpanzee and a chimpanzee that has good eyesight. Of course, one must also study the privations that these notes of being imply. You have being, but you also have non-being. You have unity, but you also have multiplicity. You have truth, but you also have the metaphysical problem of falsehood or error. And you have goodness, but you also have the problem of evil. Natural evils, like the blindness of the chimpanzee, and in our case, moral evils. 
Metaphysics is a body of knowledge that studies these features of all reality and therefore is presupposed epistemologically by all other forms of knowledge. Because anything you study exists, you presuppose that it exists when you study it. People who study, for example, the developmental formation of stars, or the psychology of child development, or the ethics of just war, might infrequently ask what these things really are, or why they are in their deepest roots, but what they study does exist. Metaphysics touches also upon that which is deepest in reality, the common being in all things, the being that's present in all things. Due to this fact, it's also a science open to the question of ultimate causality and immaterial reality. That's to say, whether there is a, a, a mono, whether monotheism is true, whether God causes all things to exist, and therefore is the author of common being or the being present in all things. But also metaphysics is open to the question of the immaterial human soul and the possibility of angelic beings, because it can talk about whether these things exist. Do we have immaterial souls? Is that a religious myth? Or is it a reality? If there's a transcendent and immaterial reality, it is not known about by the study of quantity or through observational sciences, or even the philosophical consideration of material natural kinds. It's known about through metaphysical reflection upon existence. So thinking about existence for Aquinas is a prelude or foundation for our capacity to think about the transcendent mystery of God in his being, his unity, his goodness, and his truthfulness. The transcendental notions can be extended from this world, where they're common to all things, to a script by analogical ascription predication, to the hidden cause of all things that is, as it were, concealed from us, uh, as it were, you might say, behind, above, beneath the density of created beings, which conceal, in a way, God from us, but to whom we can ascribe these transcendental notions in an imperfect and analogical sense. Now, this is all philosophy. For Aquinas, God enters into the science of metaphysics not as the proper subject of that science. That's to say, metaphysics is not primarily about God. Avicenna had claimed this, but Aquinas teaches that metaphysics studies being in the things that we experience around us, you might say in creatures, and God enters into metaphysics as the, as the transcendent cause of the subject matter of consideration. You might indulge me by allowing me to say that that's a rather secular idea. Philosophy really studies this world and the being of the things of this world, and God enters in to philosophy as a kind of on the horizons, as a transcendent cause of the subject matter of the study of philosophy. So he might, you might say he enters into the discipline naturally at its horizon or summit as we come gradually to consider what the transcendent cause is of all that exists, that truth that gives unity to all other created and lesser truths. Okay, what should we conclude from all this? The universality of the university and its diverse disciplines that seek to understand the whole nature of being in all its different domains is grounded for Aquinas in the universality of our knowledge of all that exists. The natural study that pertains in a special way to this topic is metaphysics, and metaphysics is open from the top up, so to speak, to the question of the universal cause of all that exists, which is God, who gives being to all that is, and who is present in all that exists as its mysterious, numinous, transcendent cause. So God's not the immediate subject of study that unifies the natural learning of the university. It's actually not God, for Aquinas, that gives unity 
to university disciplines as a subject of study, but it's, it's just created being. It's everything that exists that can be studied in different ways. But God is the proximate and transcendent subject that unites all learning as the unifying cause of that which exists in creation. So that if you didn't have that horizon open to God, it would start to endanger the intelligibility of the unity of learning. Now other medievals sought to arrange this conceptual material very differently and in interesting ways. But typically there was agreement throughout the 13th and 14th centuries that Christian philosophy in the university should be what the late Dutch scholar Jan Ertsen called transcendental thought. That's to say, not in a Kantian sense, thought centered around the transcendentals. As mentioned, these are properties coextensive with being. That's to say, the university is a place concerned above all with being, truth, goodness, and indeed beauty, and their privations. Why is this the case? For philosophical reasons, because the university aspires to genuine intellectual universality in the natural order, but also adjacent to this shared Christian philosophical conviction is the theological doctrine of creation. All that exists is from God and bears marks of his uncreated being, uncreated truth, goodness, and beauty. At the same time, the revelation of God to Israel and to the apostolic Catholic Church reveals to us the inner life of the Holy Trinity. You might say the being, life, truth, and life of God in himself as Father, Word, and spirated love. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's interesting that the medievals confidently took the transcendental notions up to, you might say, a third order, from just being something present in all things, insofar as they exist, to being naturally predicable, in Aquinas' case by analogy, to God as the created author of all being, philosophically, to notions that can be ascribed in another yet higher, you might say, theological analogical register to the mystery of the Holy Trinity. So you can talk about the eternal, the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is eternal love, or you can talk about the Word as the generated truth of the, of the Father. So the universality of being turns out to stem in a theological light, in light of divine revelation, from a universality of the life of the Holy Trinity, a creative life of eternal contemplation and love, of the eternal procession of the Word and of the Spirit, through whom God has made all things. So now all the lower registers of being are intelligible utterly, ultimately, in light of the mystery of the inner life of the Holy Trinity, which is interiorly fecund through generation inspiration, but exteriorly creative through communicating being and goodness uh, and the grainy reality, the grit of reality, to us in our created form. Trinitarian theology does not do violence to our human knowledge of creation, you might say our transcendental knowledge. On the contrary, it illuminates it from a higher source in ways compatible with and assimilative of our natural forms of knowledge. Reflection on the Holy Trinity therefore makes use of metaphysical knowledge of the divine attributes of the one God, reflection likewise on man in the state of grace and as fallen and as wounded by original sin or as redeemed by Christ, all great theological topics of anthropology, makes use of natural knowledge of human persons. So the philosophical study of human nature is not in tension or irreconcilable opposition to the theological anthropology. Just as the study of Christ makes use of the philosophical study of the human body and soul, it's when we talk about the body and soul of Christ as truly human and as intelligible, therefore in part in philosophical terms.
If theology shows that the world of being is a created world stemming from Trinitarian life and divine interpersonal communion, natural learning aids us to understand by analogy the mysteries of the faith, Trinity, human salvation, and incarnation, because our natural learning about the mystery of God, human nature, body and soul, can contribute to building up a deep understanding of theological mysteries. So what have we sought to establish so far in these reflections? First, that Aquinas and others who were at the start of the university life of Europe believed that there were divisions to the diverse disciplines based on their irreducibly distinct objects, but also unity and integration based on the universality of being in all things. Second, that there is a philosophical centrality to metaphysics in the life of the university, the science of the transcendentals. Last, that the theological doctrine of creation and the philosophical doctrine of the transcendentals overlap significantly. At its heights, speculative reason is naturally open to revelation because it's concerned with all that exists, and revelation is assimilative of natural reason because it illumines all that exists. The university is unified, then, by both the work of theology and philosophy, faith and reason, in complex but intelligible ways, the consideration of God has a central place in both these disciplines of philosophy and theology, and maintains a kind of center of gravity to human thought within the universal aspiration and scope of ambitions that form university intellectual life. That's the first part of the essay, and now I'm going to transition to more like our problems and Songen. Now today... This whole vision is, you might say, this set of questions or problems that the medievals were trying to solve could be inverted. Um, We ask today, not so much theologically, whether philosophy could be shown to be open to revelation, but how and whether there can really be philosophy within theology at all. You you might think about a, a very noteworthy option, that of Karl Barth, who's an incredibly sophisticated theorist who doesn't really want to have a formally distinct philosophical moment within theology and is quite self-conscious about how he realizes that project on a massive scale. And you have another shade of this totally different in Jean-Luc Marion. Okay, just to give some obvious examples of people who problematize the medieval conversation in creative ways and in, in, in interesting ways. Correspondingly, can there be any place for Catholic theology or of Christian theology more generally within the secular modern university? The first question that I asked has its remote origins in the Kantian critique of metaphysics, and approximately, you might say, it's characterized by the famous 20th century debate between Bard and Chavara regarding the analogy of being and its use in theology. The crisis of confidence in the classical model became widespread within Catholic theological circles, to be sure, And today, we might ask, can we realistically hope for renewal of a classical synthesis of faith and reason if we are bound to do that by making use of the traditional terms of classical metaphysics? The second question we face, that of the secular, I mean, the more secular question, like why would theology even be present in the university? Well, it has its historical roots in the French Revolution, to be sure, which sought self-consciously to redirect the the work of the Sorbonne in view of intra-worldly enlightenment political ends, divorced definitively from academic study of divine revelation. The Sorbonne was the first university that banned the teaching of theology, and to this day it's illegal for a Catholic priest to teach in a French university. They've been wonderfully consistent. 
And it's had interesting and somewhat positive effects on theology in France, by the way. That's an, then we should turn to that conversation eventually. Of course, the German and English Enlightenment found other solutions and integrated theology into the modern university differently, differently from one another, often in a Protestant context. Catholic universities in America offer a modern model that is basically an outlier in regards to Northern Europe. Basically, however, Catholic theology today, it's typically in North America and much of Northern Europe at least, an underground movement, academically speaking, marginalized from public academic life. This is a secondary consideration, however. Even more primary is the loss of a clear sense of the unity of secular university life itself as a life of learning, which John Cavadini rightly and strongly stressed. This lack of unity has at least four causes, historically speaking. Well, first, the loss of, re of reference to divine revelation in the 18th century, as aforenoted. noted. Second, and closely following, philosophical skepticism regarding philosophical treatments of classical notions of philosophical realism, at least since the time of Hume and Kant, which called into question in turn traditional visions of the person, the world, and natural knowledge of God. Third, I I'll put this in slightly polemical terms, ambient despair of a unified form of knowledge that has been engendered in part by postmodern skepticism of the sort that we derive from Nietzsche, Heidegger, and Foucault, even in the face of Kantian liberalism, which was the last refuge of traditional thinking, arguably. And most recently, the practical effects of hyper-specialization of disciplines and the consumerist, uh, economically motivated technocracy of the university centered on business and science innovation as the primary aims of university education linked to capitalism. Now, paradoxically, in this context, Catholic theology is important in hidden but suggestive ways. Allow me to turn in this final part of the paper to the thought of the understudied 20th century Catholic theologian Gottlieb Songen. Songen was a diocesan priest who taught theology at the University of Munich. Expert in Bonaventure, he is most well known for his response to the Bart Chavara debate and for the fact that he supervised the doctoral work of the young Joseph Ratzinger. In many ways, his ideas on faith and reason are reflected deeply in Benedict XVI's famous Regensburg lecture with its strong Augustinian connotations uh, in the reflections on the university revelation and reason. Now, Songen published two articles in the journal Catholica, Theology Journal, in 1934 in response to Bart and Chavara on the Catholic notion of the analogy of faith in relation to the analogy of being, the so-called analogia fidei, which is you know, a term in Bart, but it means something different in Catholic theology and really was developed as a kind of theme in Catholic theology in the late 19th century. Now, in his paper, these actually two papers he published, he stressed four points regarding what the analogy of faith or analogia fidei consists in in Catholic thought. And each of them has an interestingly profound bearing on our topic. So I'm going to consider them each briefly. You really should read the article, but I'm going to allude to them and, and try to suggest ways they speak to our contemporary fragmented university intellectual life. So the first has to do with ultimate explanations. Sohngen notes that the unity of the mystery of God in its diverse elements of revelation calls forth a sense of the unity of all knowledge. This occurs in a twofold way. Let me explain. First, there's an intelligible unity present within the diverse mysteries of faith. So, for example, the theologian considers the mystery of the Holy Trinity as it relates to the mystery of God's designs in creation and the missions of the Word and the Spirit, the Incarnation and the Atonement, 
the resurrection of Christ, the church as a mystery, the sacraments, the life of grace, all these elements of mystery cohere. So if there's an internal logos or rationality in the highest, uh, highest echelon of reality, in God's own eternal word, and in the mysteries that unfold from God, the Trinity, then there's reason to have confidence in the rationality of God's work in creation and history. You might say in this sense that if theology impresses upon the theologian the burden of seeking intelligibility at the highest levels of reality in the Trinity and in the work of the Trinity, then the theologian should presuppose that there's logos, that there's rationality in lower registers of reality. Second then, and this is still in the first point, this unity of revealed knowledge is present in theology while still respecting the distinction of nature and grace. Therefore, the Catholic theologian must recognize the integrity of natural knowledge as itself a united knowledge open to revelation. Well, you have to respect the unity of nature. If grace is a gift, then it's a gift given to something. And that means there's something that we have in the realm of nature and of knowledge that is not grace and not faith. And that has to be in some way capable of perceiving and being open to revelation. So in short, the universality of truth made available in divine revelation calls forth or invites a confidence in the unity of our natural knowledge of the world. Divine logos, revealing itself, you might say, calls forth confidence in human logos. This is a standard theme in Ratzinger's writings. It's paradoxical. It's like that after the Enlightenment, you have this crisis of confidence in the unity of, and universality of reason, and actually divine revelation initiates confidence in natural human reason as a consequence or as an echo of the claim that we're capable of knowing and of, of receiving the, the theological knowledge, properly speaking, of God's own mystery. Second, another theological idea, the unity of the canon that's to say of the Old and New Testaments. This was alluded to by Professor Cavadini with regards to the crisis of kind of the, the deep hermeneutics of theological biblical reading. Um, Sonkin points out that if the scriptures are not merely a human religious artifact, but are also and above all the inspired word of God, then they must have an internal unity. Book speaks to book, author speaks to author, idea speaks to idea. In no, no matter how complicated a fashion, we have to posit an ultimate unity. So in this case, biblical hermeneutics, however complex its texture, is ultimately a reflection on the truth of history in light of God and as reflective of God. History can have an internal meaning. We can discover. We don't just project or create. Now this implies the that there's a hermeneutical realism about texts in correspondence to ontology. The texts ultimately refer us back to the nature of reality. The realism of biblical faith calls forth a broader confidence in the unity of reason in interpreting texts within history so as to seek a common truth through conversation or seeking through inevitable controversies and conflicts to resolve what is true. So this has implications for hermeneutics more, more generally and normatively that in literature and history we're actually ultimately seeking in complex ways the truth of the nature of things. Third, the unity of church proclamation and biblical witness so Songen emphasizes as a coherence between what the church teaches and what the Bible reveals, or you might say that what the Bible reveals gives rise to the clarifications of what the church teaches. They're not on two tracks or unrelated. Catholic theology presupposes that the church discerns and declares formally over time as true apostolic teaching, what is based on the original revelation of God, 
and that this progressive development of doctrine that occurs in the church does so in an organic way in continuity with the past and in anticipation of the future. Of course, I'm alluding here to John Henry Newman, and so was Songen. Now, this means in concrete practice that the church confronts the bewilderingly vibrant developments of the natural sciences, history, anthropology, or bioethics in the light of Revelation with hope for a collective ecclesial effort in finding the common truth of things synthetically over time, as with, for example, this example, I mean, the example that John Kevin E. gave of uh, you know, human origins and original sin, the distinctiveness character of the human person, how can philosophers, anthropologists, paleontologists, biologists, and theologians over time come to a kind of erudite, nuanced understanding or reasonable set of claims, possibly, about human origins? That's a collective group project. It takes time. It's a collaborative one. Now, this course, this theological project of integrating truths over time in light of dogmas in the light of the, 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 the biblical revelation as clarified by the church corresponds analogically in the natural order to the hope of universality in the community that's un, the, in the university community, sorry, that seeks to find the natural truth of all things through time in cooperation among different disciplines with patience unified by a common thread of realism in the midst of an interdisciplinary search. And everybody talks about this, and we know it's very difficult to realize and that the siloed character of the practices of professional academics is perhaps as acute as it has ever been. So, it, it, I mean, it's an aspiration that seems to me, in principle, absolutely necessary. And Songen is showing how there's got to be kind of, he's suggesting there's a natural corollary, corollary to development of doctrine that could happen in the university as you integrate the developmental knowledge that transpires in different disciplines into a greater whole. Finally, for Sungen, all of this study of divine revelation, the three points made above, the study of the intrinsic knowledge of the mysteries, the, the study of the coherence of the hermeneutics of biblical theology and the coherence of church teaching through time and the light of new knowledge in coherence with uh, traditional doctrine and scripture, that all has to be correlated with the analogia entis, the philosophical consideration of the transcendental features of being in, in creation that themselves evoke naturally the possibility of rational knowledge of God and allow us to demonstrate the human mind is intrinsically open to divine revelation, not closed to it. Now that is today the study of the, that is to say today the study of the mystery of revelation is always also conducted against the backdrop of metaphysical philosophy so that there's the consistent presupposition for Songen of the harmony of divinely revealed truth and natural reason. Practically, today, this means that the modern secular university could, in principle, profit from Catholic theologians when they reflect these four concerns of Songen, not only the fourth of them, but the fourth is especially important, to show how real knowledge of being, unity, truth, goodness, and beauty are possible, and how such knowledge suggests the possibility of divine revelation as a rational possibility. This doesn't need to be shown simply philosophically. It needs to be shown in other disciplines in their own ways, because the truth about human existence can also be shown by reading Thucydides or studying history or looking at literary motifs that, in fact, have a philosophical foundation in the nature of the human person or human society, or, for example, in political science, which is closely adjacent to political philosophy. But also, the theologian can show how the study of the transcendentals can be integrated into the living claims of Catholic theology, 
thinking about being truth, goodness, and beauty must be integrated into and manifest from within our thinking about the mystery of God, the Trinity, the person of Christ, and the mystery of the Church. And in his own way, Balthazar has attempted to do a project like, to articulate a project like this. As one might suspect, as a Thomist, I have some suspicions or concerns, but I think there are uh, about the, you know, the dereliction theology and some of the intertrinitarian kenosis. But those are, in a certain way, internal family concerns because the larger aspiration is one in which uh, Balthazar is deeply influenced overtly by both Aquinas and Songen. And, and so I think that the conversation between Balthazar and Aquinas continues to be an interesting one from the point of view of the things that I'm highlighting. I finish. The modern university is in fact haunted, perhaps, by a crisis of meaning. I say that as somebody who travels around and talks to undergraduates who are often, I think, it's fair to say, very deeply bewildered at what they've received by the time they're seniors and do not feel like they have a deeply integrated understanding of reality. The proposals I've made here are, of course, classically Aristotelian, Augustinian, and Thomistic, and that is to say medieval in origin. And they could be arguably... You know, you could say that they're nostalgic or unrealistic. You might say that, especially if you think we've irrevocably left the Middle Ages. I'll just finish with this slight provocation. Remy Bragg recently made a very cleverly stated argument in which he claimed that it's not the case that we've left the Middle Ages, but we're only living out one version of them, now in full blossom, which took many of its central ideas from William of Ockham, took them quite seriously, and developed a framework around them. Now, Bragg's thought experiment is not meant to bind us to his coy genealogy, but only to suggest that, in fact, we are still basically living within arguments framed many centuries before us, and we are free so as not to be bound by the determinations taken in the previous century or so. The future requires of us, of us or it's, it invites us to, a ressourcement, a renewal by going back to sound resources so as to move forward in profound ways that are completely contemporary. For this, we should look again to the realism and confidence of the Christian Aristotelian revolution of the first era of the university, and at its, at its center, we can be helped by thinking about the thought of Thomas Aquinas. Thank you very much.